morning, Seattle. Welcome to the Bloody Bazaar podcast. My name is Emma. I'm Sarah. Oh, um, <laughs> you didn't like my opening? That maybe is my least favourite one that you've done. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess we're learning as we go. Glad I could provide that for the last episode and for, of this quarter, half, semester. <clears throat> um, yeah, Sarah just fuddled her way through. <laughs> This we're taking a two week break after this. We have flagged that this is not. I hope we're not springing this on anyone. No, we we did tell people to put it in their calendars and not. Oh to yeah, be scared. we did. Yeah. yeah. So don't be scared next week. Yeah. When you look for an episode and it is not there. But and also while we're taking the two weeks off posting, we're going to be recording. So we're banking still, some. Yeah, we're still doing some. It's just that we have found that we're both very busy, and so we end up scrambling to record an episode on time for it to be uploaded on the Sunday. So if we've got a couple banked, then at least we won't be stressing if we don't get to record that week. Yeah, we'd like to have a, like at least a couple ahead, whereas we're skating by the pants of our... Sh- sh- pe- seat of, seat our, of pants. our pants. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say pants of our shoes. It's not even close. So, yeah, so this is the last episode before our break, so... Patchy. Yeah, that was yucky noise. He's licking his penis. Looks so embarrassed. Touchy. <laughs> okay, Mr. Boy. It's just very yucky. It's just in polite society, we don't lick our genitals generally. I tell you what, he was such a bad house guest at my house. Why? What did he do? He was barking at every little thing that went past. He's a protective boy. No, Clifford's a protective boy who can distinguish between an enemy and a little girl on a bike. <laughs> I told you, he doesn't <laughs> like bikes, he doesn't like cyclists. <laughs> Well, he's his mother's son. <laughs> um, okay. Do you want to give a shout out to anyone? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. Um, okay. So, that I reminded you, I guess. Yeah. Remember I sent you, did I send you a screenshot? Yeah, I sent you a screenshot. Mm-hmm. Jess. Can I so I was Jess? thinking about this and I was thinking if I listened to a podcast that was kind of lame, yeah, I would be embarrassed if they called me out. I did say to her, don't be weirded out if we give you a shout out. Okay. Um, yeah. So Jess, who is also from Perth. Hey, Jess. <laughs> Um, hope you're doing well and how gross is this weather actually i really like this weather she was lovely she was saying i know you guys are keen to hear from followers who aren't just friends and family said she was loving it she said she even loved the way that like you can hear dog snoring or like somebody's drunk or hungover all right well that's often isn't it yeah Yeah. (laughs) so um it was well we've got a lot more where that's gonna come from (laughs) why am i fucking up saying i'd always fuck up saying that's all right Anyway, just thank you so much for getting in touch with us. It made my day. Yeah, it, it makes Sarah's day every time anyone does anything. Mm-hmm. If she gets a new follower. Yeah, it does. Literally. Lights are up. Yeah. <laughs> I like it too. Yeah. Anyone else you want to? No, th- thanks again to Tim for last week's episode. Yeah. Um, for and, that suggestion. And I want to apologize en masse to everyone that listens to the last two episodes. We were drunk. I wasn't. I was drunk. You weren't. You. I don't even think you were that drunk. The next morning, I couldn't remember a thing you told me. Really? Uh huh. That's insane. Were you drinking like much before I got there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you didn't seem that drunk. So I'm sorry for how sloppy I might have been, and maybe like a bit opinionated, and definitely talked over Sarah a lot. And yeah, I told you I edited that out of the episode, yeah. so the listeners wouldn't have heard that. I'm just being honest. Okay. It's okay. I'm going to try not to do it again, but... No, nobody's mad at you. But I can't guarantee that I won't be drunk for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> if this was an evening record, you chances are I'd have a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, look, if, that's, if you're done with the shout-outs... Jump into it. 
I'm going to tell you today about... Oh, I think I know what you're doing. Oh, no. Not a fun one. Yeah, we said we were going to do a fun one. I didn't agree to that. Well, the next one that I'm recording, which is like a spare episode, it's a really fun one. Yeah, so good luck whenever you hear that. Whenever that one comes out. Okay, so first of all, I'll tell you my sources. I have Red Handed Podcast, Wikipedia, and a Mamma Mia article with no byline. Is that it? Mm Mm-hmm. In depth. Um, okay. Do you want to hear the story or not? Yeah, go on. Once dubbed Australia's most hated woman, after spending 20 years in prison on the 5th of June 2023, Kathleen Folbig was pardoned after having been convicted in 2003 of the killing of her four children between 1989 and 1999. Let's dive in. I'm going to find this one very upsetting. Yes, you will. To say Kathleen Folbig, born Donovan did not have an easy start to life would be an understatement. She was born to parents Thomas John Taffy Britton. Taffy is his, like, nickname. And Kathleen May Donovan. So her her and her mum have the same name. In 1967 in New South Wales, Australia. Taffy was an abusive man. Do you remember that we had a cat called Taffy? Yes. I love Taffy. Yeah, she was funny. Taffy was an abusive man. Not Now it seems like I'm talking about a cat Taffy. I don't know why I brought it up at that point. I (laughs) know. Taffy the man was abusive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Taffy the man, not Taffy the cat. <laughs> this isn't funny. <clears throat> Taffy was an abusive man. <laughs> You're just thinking of the cat now. <laughs> you get to like, stop calling him Taffy. Okay, what's his actual name? <laughs> Thomas John. Just call him Thomas. <laughs> okay. Taffy's a funny name. Taffy's anyway. so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and also Taffy was a, such a funny cat too. She was a funny cat and it's a funny sounding name, like even without the cat it connotation. It fluffy. Yes. And to pair it with like, to pair it with extreme violence. <laughs> okay. Okay. It would be like if you were like, Patchy was a violent man. So Thomas John. Yeah, Yeah, was an abusive man. Uh, Prior to his relationship with Kathleen May, he had attempted to kill his former partner, slashing her throat. He'd spent some time in prison for this attack. Kathleen May, the mother, um, eventually got sick of Thomas John's violence uh, and walked out, leaving baby Kathleen in his care. However, Thomas John couldn't allow Kathleen May to leave, uh, so he'd tracked her down, stabbed her 24 times in the street, killing her. Thomas John was arrested the day after the murder and was convicted of of murder, uh, serving 15 years behind bars before being deported back to the UK. So this essentially, this happened when the younger Kathleen was 18 months old. And so when John was sent back to uh, the UK, or essentially when he was convicted and put in prison, she became a ward of the state. Yeah. And just to, um, I just want to throw it out there when people say why didn't she just leave this is what happens when women leave yeah we have so many examples of why Mm. it's you know not always just as easy as walking out the door um she was placed so the younger kathleen was placed into foster care uh with a couple looking after her for a couple of years before being moved to badura children's home two months later she was moved to a permanent foster care placement where she would remain until her teens at the age of 15 believing her parents to be her adoptive parents she learned that in fact they were still only fostering her having never adopted her she was technically still a ward of the state. She also learned that is, that is generally how it goes. They didn't, but they didn't adopt her. Yeah, that that doesn't really happen 
very often. It's very rare. Okay, well, she was under the impression that they had adopted her and they were like, no, you're just a foster kid. Like, they told her. Hmm. If I was the parents, I'd be like, yeah, fine, believe that we're your adopted parents. Yeah, She no, knew she was adopted. It, yeah, no, because the, the department would be wanting to, like, see her and talk to her and stuff. In... In 1998 or whatever? Um, I mean, look, different states run things differently, but I know in WA there's no way you could keep that a secret from a kid. Well, you, you, until 15 she it was. I don't know. It's weird. At, at around 15 they do start doing leaving care stuff, which is – so maybe they – Started doing that? Yeah. Well, she also around this time learned the truth about her birth parents. That's rough. So two – so a double whammy for her. Yeah. Also around this time, Kathleen left school. Uh, one of Kathleen's school friends said that Kathleen told them about all this stuff kind of matter-of-factly, um, but other than that, she didn't really talk about it. Mm. Apparently, after the revelation that she was not legally their child, the mood shifted in the house and tensions kind of escalated. Kathleen eventually leaving at 17 and going to live with Billy Joe Bradshaw and Bradshaw's mother. That's a school friend of hers. Bradshaw had this to say about her friend. Quote, I was bullied a lot at school. She would stick up for me and tell people off and just protect me. She was always there for me. Oh, that's nice. She was with the Bradshaws for a few months before moving in with a man named Craig Folbig after meeting him at a disco and falling for him. At 20, she married Craig. Kathleen spoke of her desire to create a happy family to make up for the sad and unfortunate upbringing that she'd had. Two years into the marriage, Craig and Kathleen welcomed baby Caleb. The pair were overjoyed. Caleb was born healthy other than a mild case of laryngomalacia. What's that? Which is where the larynx is softer than usual and can flop over and create obstruction over the airways. But the case was mild, and so the doctor advised that Caleb would eventually outgrow the issue and no medical intervention was necessary. And it's relatively common too. Um, and yeah, and, and it's like 90% of cases don't require medical intervention. The couple's joy would quickly turn to sorrow as just 19 days after Caleb was born, Kathleen discovered him unresponsive in his cot. The death was attributed to SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome, also known as cot death. So scary. Yeah. Sudden infant death syndrome is the sudden unexplained death of a child of less than one year of age. Diagnosis requires that the death remain unexplained even after a thorough autopsy and detailed death scene investigation. SIDS usually occurs during sleep. Typically death occurs between the hours of midnight and 9am. There is usually no noise or evidence of struggle. SIDS remains the leading cause of infant mortality in Western countries, contributing to half of all postnatal deaths. The exact cause of SIDS is unknown. The requirement of a combination of factors, including a specific underlying susceptibility, a specific time in development, and an environmental stressor has been proposed. SIDS makes up about 80% of sudden and unexpected infant deaths. The other 20% of cases are often caused by infections, genetic disorders, and heart problems. While child abuse in the form of intentional suffocation may be misdiagnosed as SIDS, this is believed to make up less than 5% of sudden death cases in infants. Yeah. I wanted to give everyone a, a kind of quick rundown on SIDS because I'm just going to feature in this case a couple of times. Do you talk later about the new research around SIDS? No. Okay. You want to... Well, okay, so I recently, this was like in the past two years, I think they've come out with some new research saying that there's apparently a genetic mm. disposition towards SIDS. So yeah. while it's it's like looking like they need to maybe do more research into the gene. Um, hang on. So Sydney Children's Hospital, so this is Health New South Wales Government, World first breakthrough could prevent SIDS. This was the 7th of May 2022. And they've said, researchers have identified, okay, you ready for this one, this pronunciation? Mm-hmm. Butyricosis. 
cholinesterase. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> or BCHE as the first biochemical marker that could help detect babies more at risk of sudden infant death syndrome while they're alive. The study published today, so this was May 2022, mm-hmm. analysed BCHE activity in 722 dried blood spots taken at birth as part of the newborn screening program. BCHE plays a major role in the brain's arousal pathway and researchers believe its deficiency likely indicates an arousal deficit, which reduces an infant's ability to wake or respond to the external environment, causing vulnerability to SIDS. Hmm. Okay, so um, as well as all those other environmental factors and all that kind of stuff, probably a genetic, something genetic at play as well. Yeah, but keeping in mind that that is literally like less than a year that that mm. information has been out. So it's yeah. very, very new that they've started to look at it. But they've way. thought they've thought it was genetic for a while. Well, I think they've had – I mean, obviously they've had their suspicions mm. if they've been doing research on it, but everything and, that I've seen has literally just been safe sleep. Yeah, but so even in the, in the Wikipedia article it says underlying susceptibility. Yeah, so they do say that if kids have trouble with like – like breathing issues and stuff that that can make them more susceptible. Okay, so anyway, um preemie babies, stuff like that. So Caleb died of SIDS officially um at the moment. Uh Kathleen would fall pregnant again shortly after Caleb's death, which must have been pretty tough for them to be yeah. grieving a dead baby while celebrating a new pregnancy, but yeah. Just over a year after the death of Caleb, the couple's second child, Patrick, was born in June of 1990. This time, Craig took three months off work to help care for the baby. After putting Patrick to bed in October, he awoke to the sound of his wife screaming. He found Kathleen standing at Patrick's cot. Patrick was not breathing. CPR was started and an ambulance was called. The baby was able to be revived, however, was diagnosed with epilepsy and cortical blindness. Um, Neither was said to explain his loss of consciousness, though. How did they not know he was blind before that? I don't know. But sadly, four months after this incident, Patrick would die as a result of the seizures that he was experiencing because of his epilepsy. So These poor parents. Yeah. Following the death of their second child, the couple decided that they needed to move and they resettled in Thornton in New South Wales. Understandable, I think. Um, There they gave birth to a daughter, Sarah. Another Sarah. Another Sarah. Added to the list. (laughs) Sarah would only survive 10 months before dying. Oh, my God. God. So, wait, the first baby lasted, like, a couple of weeks. Let's see. 19 um, days. 19 days. Next baby was a few months. Uh, next baby, yep, a few months. So, within the three months that the dad took off. Yeah. Um, and then um, 10 months. So, the couple moved again to a suburb called Singleton, um, still in New South Wales. And four years after the death of their third child, Kathleen gave birth to Laura. He would just be a wreck. Like, oh, he would yeah. just be so paranoid about mm-hmm. every single little thing. The couple were obviously incredibly nervous about Laura's survival and so were able to relax a little when the child made it to a year old. It's obviously, we know that SIDS happens before a year yeah. um, in overwhelming majority of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and Laura seemed healthy, despite it later being revealed that the child had myocarditis, which is a, I think it's an heart. inflammation of the heart. Yeah. But unfortunately, tragedy struck again when Laura was 18 months old. She was found by Kathleen unresponsive. Oh, no. The police now were suspicious. Yeah. There was no evidence to suggest that Kathleen had been anything but a loving, attentive mother and Craig a caring and gentle father. That was until a few months after Laura's death. 
So Craig Folbig, Kathleen's husband, found Kathleen's diary and was startled by what he found in it. The diary was a kind of stream of consciousness about life, grief, marriage, and motherhood. And I'm going to focus on the diary entries for a moment. They were used heavily by the prosecution in her later trial. Spoiler. Uh, Kathleen has since explained the entries, and I want to focus on the ones that seem incriminating and then also point out Kathleen's explanation. I think it's important to note that the entries were taken in isolation, um, were presented in isolation, and essentially it was these diary entries that secured her conviction. Really? Yeah. All they used was... They had they they only use circumstantial evidence in the in the case. One of the entries read, "Quote: What scares me most will be when I am alone with my baby." That's it. That's one of them. That's nothing. Of course, you're scared to be alone because you don't have the help. Yeah. So Kathleen said, "I'm expressing the fear that I was scared to death of not finding my child alive." Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, even if you haven't had a kid die, you would be. I mean, when yeah. when Greg went back to work after I had Abby, I was scared because I was like, "Am I going to be able to do this? Am yeah. I going to be okay?" Like, yep. it's I not, wouldn't. It's I, not you scared of what you're going to do to your kid. It's you scared that like of everything. Yeah. Um. Another <laughs> what entry. The fuck? How did they? How did they think that that was suspicious? I mean, I guess if you're putting it together with her kids dying, but yeah, and and in conjunction itself, with all the other. Um, so here's another diary entry. Sarah left with a bit of help. Mm. So Kathleen explains that she meant God or a higher power, not her killing her child. Okay. Another one. There's nothing wrong with Laura, nothing out of the ordinary anyway, because it was me, not them. Okay. So Kathleen says she, she yeah, she blamed herself after each death. Um, she felt if she was a better mother, she could have noticed something and potentially saved them. Okay. So that's more just self-blame. Yeah. So, I mean, since Kathleen's pardon, there are so many experts that are like, this is this is pure grief and self-hatred. Yeah. Like, that's uh-huh. all it is. But Craig took the diary to the police shortly after finding it in 1999. Craig and Kathleen were, the, were divorced in 2000. And in 2001, the police arrested Kathleen for the murder of three of her children and the manslaughter and grievous bodily harm of one of them. Hang on, how how did they come to the conclusion that she was responsible for all of those deaths? Uh, the diaries, essentially. Literally? Essentially, that- and because, like, so, for example, with SIDS, they couldn't prove that it was SIDS, right? So they found these diaries and then they were like, oh, well, it must have been. It, it's, the con- is- it's the combination of four deaths and seeming guilty in the diaries. This is, um, I know you're going to hate me saying this, but it's giving me, like, Kelly Lane Kelly vibes. Kelly Lane vibes. Okay, so... Kathleen's trial started in 2003, lasted seven weeks. The prosecution alleged Folbig smothered her children to death during periods of frustration. They recited a now largely discredited theory posited by British doctor Roy Meadow. Essentially, it highlights the improbability of four children dying in one household. Sure, it's improbable, but it's not impossible. Called Meadow's Law, it goes, quote, one sudden infant death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and three is murder until proven otherwise. No. End quote. That's not how it fucking works. So I'm going to talk about Meadows, Meadows Law a little bit. Yeah. Um, this theory was developed by Meadow in an, in an attempt to explain multiple incidents of SIDS within one family. One of the issues with Meadows Law is that he was treating each incident of sudden infant death in isolation, not taking into account genetic factors, which in fact, if there has already been one case of SIDS, raises the possibility of it happening again in a family. Yeah, like it seems this the research is starting to suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, the- I think that Meadows doesn't like women. 
Just saying. Well, I, I'm going to tell you some stuff that's going to make you hate Meadows. Okay. Well, I already don't yeah, like Yeah, except him. for that, yeah. <laughs> um, the reliance on Meadows law in courtrooms in the past has resulted in a number of convictions and thousands of children being removed from potentially completely safe homes. Oh, my God. I'm going to talk about a couple of cases at the end of this story that um, also relied on Meadows law. It's just so unfair if you're a mum who you've got that gene or your kid has that gene, your kids have that gene and you're nothing but a loving mum and then you not only do you have to lose your kids but Mm. then you also are Are possibly put in jail or are accused. And because the scientific evidence has not quite caught caught up, up, yeah. You're just you just have to be you just have to live with it. Oh my god. And it's, it's just awful. like it's like torture. And like some people are just the lucky ones who don't have that gene. Mm-hmm. Um so where Roy Meadows is a bit of a I mean look, I suppose he thought he was doing the right thing, right? Yeah, he thought he was saving babies. babies. Yeah. But completely completely wrong. And also he was he was giving these uh statistics where he'd be like the likelihood that this was anything but murder would be 1 in 73,000 or something like that, right? But that that statistic was erroneous. There there was these statisticians that were like he's squared the number where he should have done this instead. Like he's he was incorrect. And so he was giving incorrect testimony that was essentially putting these women away for life and oh you know and getting these kids taken away from their parents mm-hmm. and I don't know like I I get that he was just trying to do the right thing but to be so reckless and careless, it yeah. seems like he should have done better. Anyway, on 21st of May 2003, Folbig was found guilty by the Supreme Court of New South Wales jury of the following crimes. Three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm. On 24th of October 2003, Folbig was sentenced to 40 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 30 years. I'm sorry, and this was based on the evidence of her her diary entries. and And the deaths. And the deaths just being, like, it being suspicious that mm-hmm. they all died. Yeah. That's not evidence. No, it's not. Oh, my God. This makes me so fucking angry. This is, yeah, this is re- this is making me angry like the Kelly Lane one made me angry where it's like, that's not, that's not evidence. You can't just say because it's weird and sus that mm. that means that the person is guilty. You have to actually prove them guilty. On 17th of February 2005, so this is two years after her conviction, the court reduced her sentence to 30 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 25 years on appeal. Due to the nature of her purported crimes, Folbig resided in protective custody to prevent possible violence by other inmates. Nevertheless, after a transfer of prisons, Folbig was savagely beaten by another inmate on New Year's Day 2021. So let's jump back a little bit. In 2013, a team of lawyers in Newcastle, New South Wales, enlisted several medical experts, including Stephen Cordner, a renowned forensic pathologist at Melbourne's Monash University, whose 121-page report argued that Sarah's death appeared to be an almost textbook example of sudden infant death syndrome, and that Caleb's floppy larynx, Patrick's severe seizures, and Laura's myocarditis more strongly supported death by natural causes than did smothering, for which no evidence existed. Right. In June 2015, so that's two years after this report comes out, Fulbig's legal team delivered an official petition, including Cordner's report, to the Attorney General's office in Sydney. Three years later in 2018, New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman announced that there would be an inquiry into the convictions to, quote, ensure public confidence in the administration of justice and, quote, the petition appears to raise a doubt or question concerning the evidence as to the incidence of reported deaths of three or more infants in the same family attributed to unidentified natural causes in the proceedings leading to Ms. Volbig's convictions. So essentially he's saying it's not safe. Volbig's legal team then approached Dr. Carola Garcia de Vinueta, 
Well, that was nice. Yeah. So she's an immunologist at Australian National University. She's originally from Spain and one of the first people in Australia to use genomic sequencing to link diseases to genetic variation. They recruited this doctor, Dr. Carolla, to examine the, the DNA samples of Folbig's deceased children. Vinwetha? I'm just going to say Vinwetha. Uh, Vinwetha and her colleague, geneticist Todor Arsov, uh, first started with Folbig's DNA, and both of them found a mutation in her CALM2 gene. So... CALM2 is one of three genes in the Carmodolan family, which, among other things, help regulate the heart's expansion and contractions. Many CALM gene variations are linked with long QT syndrome, a disorder that affects repolarization or relaxing of the heart after a heartbeat, giving rise to an abnormally lengthy QT interval. It can cause fast, chaotic heartbeats and can be life-threatening. Benwessa found Folbig's mutation to be significant, as other Carmodulin variants have been associated with severe cardiac disorders and sudden death in infancy. However, despite this arguably significant scientific evidence in the 500-page report released in July 2019, Reginald Blanche, a former chief judge of the district court, found he did not have, quote, any reasonable doubt as to the guilt of Kathleen Megan Folbig for the offences of which she was convicted. Well, you should. You should have reasonable doubt. I think a reasonable person would have doubt. Folbig's legal team promptly called for a review of the inquiry, citing, quote, bias. The new evidence- Why did they think that he was biased? I don't know. I mean, how could you not? Yeah, yeah, because you'd be like, what are you basing that on? What? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, the new evidence was presented to the New South Wales Court of Appeal. It was also during this time that all this was going on that a petition signed by more than 100 eminent scientists, experts in their field, was published by the Australian Academy of Science calling for the New South Wales governor to pardon Folbig. The petition also provided medical explanations for each of the deaths, as had been explained by Dr. Carola Garcia-Devinwessa. Despite all this, the appeal was rejected on 24th of March 2021. You know, sometimes I think that they, it's almost like they don't want to... Admit they made a mistake? Yeah. 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 On 18th of May 2022, then-Attorney-General Mark Speakman, so the guy that did the inquiry in the first place, announced another inquiry on 5th of June 2023. The New South Wales Attorney-General Michael Daly advised the Governor, Margaret Beasley, to exercise the royal prerogative of mercy and pardon Folbig. You said it was May 2022? June 2023. But when they first... May 2022 was when they first started the um, inquiry. Well, that is when this research came out. Uh, (laughs) Good link up. Yeah. So the governor, Margaret Margaret Beasley, did exercise the royal prerogative of mercy and she did pardon Folbig and Folbig was released from prison the very same day. So June 2023, 20 years. 20 years. 20 years after being convicted of killing her four children and being sent to prison. So poor woman. Yeah, and after the life she had too. Yeah, and having lost four children as well, Mm. lost her husband, Mm. lost everything. I mean, not even, she didn't even just lose her husband. Her husband completely betrayed her. her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not blaming him at all because he he was experiencing grief as well. Yeah, and and he thought that she had done it. He thought she'd done it and. Yeah, so anyway, okay, I'll keep going. What has been now accepted by the medical community is that each of the children died of natural causes as a result of Kathleen and Craig's genes. 
Genetic evidence published in November 2020 showed that at least two of the children had genetic mutations that predisposed them to sudden cardiac death. The researchers concluded that the CALM2 mutation carried by Kathleen and her two girls altered their heart rhythm, predisposing them to sudden unexpected death, possibly precipitated by their intercurrent infections, specifically respiratory tract infection in Sarah and myocarditis in Laura, and or medications such as Laura's pseudoephedrine. CALM2 mutations are observed at very, very low frequency, occurring in approximately one out of every 35 million individuals. Whoa. So So that means how many people are in Australia? 21, 22 million, I think. Oh, so so she might be like the only person in Australia. Possibly. And that's why it's so... It's so difficult with these mutations is because they're so rare. They're not studied yeah. as often. Mm-hmm. Also, Is that right? 22 million in Australia? 25.69 million okay. in 2021. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah. Still, yeah. So, she, yeah, she's possibly the only person in Australia with this mutation. mutation. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is they're not – you wouldn't know to look for it unless it caused something like this. Yeah. But I, I think the thing that makes me angry, I'm like I'm not angry at them for not – knowing this or not researching this or anything i'm angry that they were able to put her away for four murders when they obviously did not have the evidence because if they had the evidence then there'd be no doubt that she did this you know Mm. like nobody Mm. could come in and go oh no actually it was this because there'd be evidence like they obviously put her away with such shitty evidence yeah for such a like awful thing too I'm going to keep going. Okay. (laughs) The other two children, Caleb and Patrick, each carry two potentially lethal genetic mutations in the gene BSN, uh, which is also, um, which is called the bassoon presynaptic cytomatrix protein. It's, they just call it BSN, understandably. And this is linked to early onset lethal epilepsy in mice. Mm Mm-hmm with one mutation inherited from their mother and the second one likely inherited from their father, Craig. Notably, none of the four showed signs of smothering in the autopsy. Unfortunately, there have been a number of cases where children have died of natural causes and the parent has been convicted of their deaths, only to be exonerated by scientific evidence after having spent time behind bars. A couple more well-known cases of this kind of thing happening are Sally Clark. She was an English solicitor who, in November 1999, became the victim of a miscarriage of justice when she was found guilty of the murder of her two infant sons. Clark's first son died in December 1996, within a few weeks of his birth, and her second son died in similar circumstances in January 1998. A month later, Clark was arrested and tried for both deaths. The defence argued that the children had died of SIDS. The prosecution case relied on flawed statistical evidence presented by paediatrician Professor Roy Meadow, who, who testified on behalf of the prosecution. Clark was convicted in November 1999. The convictions were upheld on appeal in October 2000 but overturned in a second appeal in January 2003 after it emerged that Alan Williams, the prosecution forensic pathologist who examined both babies, had failed to disclose microbiological reports that suggested the second of her sons had died of natural causes. Clark was released from prison, having served more than three years of her sentence. As a result of her case, the Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, ordered a review of hundreds of other cases, and two other women had their convictions overturned. Clark's experience caused her to develop severe psychiatric problems and she died in her home in March 2007 from alcohol poisoning. So another one, um, you might have heard of this one, it's a lot more common and I've heard a couple of podcasts on this one, uh, Patricia Patty Stallings. You heard of her? Okay. No, I don't think so. So she's an American woman who was wrongfully convicted of murder after the death of her son Ryan on September 7th, 1989. 
Because testing seemed to indicate an elevated level of ethylene glycol in Ryan's blood, authorities suspected antifreeze poisoning and they arrested Patty Stallings the next day. She was convicted of murder in early 1991 and sentenced to life in prison. Stallings gave birth to another child while incarcerated, awaiting trial. He was diagnosed with methylmyelonocacidemia, or MMA, a rare genetic disorder that can mimic antifreeze poisoning. Oh, my God. And the thing with this is, in this case, MMA, so um, antifreeze poisoning is treated with, like, um, an ethylene drip or something like mm-hmm. that. But if you give an ethylene drip to a kid with MMA, it kills them. You mentioned this in the at the end of the last one. I don't yeah. know if it made it in, but you said it to me. Yeah, and so essentially the, the hospital killed the kid Yeah, because they didn't correctly diagnose MMA. Mm-hmm. Um, prosecutors initially did not believe that the sibling's diagnosis had anything to do with Ryan's case. What the fuck? How could they not? They're so good at like drawing conclu- coming to conclusions when it's like they, they want to blame the mum, but as soon as it's like something that actually shows that she's probably innocent they're like oh no those two things aren't connected well stalling's own lawyer failed to produce any available evidence as to proof of the possibility what yeah um after a professor in biochemistry and molecular biology had some of ryan's blood samples tested he was able to prove that the child had also died from died from mma and not ethylene glycol poisoning another interesting thing about that that case the patty stalling's case is that the husband believed her the whole time that she didn't do it Mm. And he managed to get the producers of Unsolved Mysteries to do a case on it. And it was because the re- the science guy was watching that episode of Unsolved Mysteries that he was like, I know what this is. No. Because he was like an expert on MMA or something like that. And they just previously to that, they hadn't talked to anyone who had that kind of knowledge. Yeah. Well, they knew that Ryan had MMA. But Sorry, they-, they knew the other kid had, had the newborn had I need to do that case, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So test samples were sent to several commercial labs that used the same method as used on Ryan's sample, and nearly half of them got it incorrect. Oh, my God. After spending nearly two years incarcerated, Stallings was released in July 1991. Um, prosecutors closed the case two months after. Not uncommon, it seems, and these are just the ones that, that we hear about. Yeah. So Kathleen Folbig has been set free and is living her life outside of prison for the first time in 20 years. She apparently is living with a friend of hers and they asked like what she was going to do. And she was like, have a bath and have a steak. And um, apparently she had like, um, they was, the friend was like, we're going to have a slumber party in, in pajamas and like, Aww, yeah. I just I feel so bad for her. She's going to have so much trauma to work through. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Her whole life's been, like half her life's been stolen. Yeah. And she had a horrible upbringing. She's had a horrible life so far, dealing with the loss of four of her children. Just blow after blow. Yeah. And then she got the shit beat out of her in prison. And probably not for the first time. So there are still people who believe she's guilty of killing her kids. Um, One of those people is her former husband. On one of the articles that I was reading about this, oh, no, no, this was in the, um, or I watched a video or something about her getting released and getting um, money from Channel 7 to give her interview. Mm. And there were so many people that were like, great, giving money to a murderer. Um, so, yeah, the fa- uh, her husband and the father of the children, Craig Forbig. 
that's got to be him self-preserving him like he I suppose but it just he's re- he's partly responsible not really because it's really the prosecution and the defense and the mm. jury but he played a part in in putting his wife away for 20 years mm. ex-wife away for 20 years for something he must know deep down she didn't do he's probably just like he can't admit that to himself yeah it would it would be like it would it destroy would, you. yeah exactly it if you allowed of, yourself to feel that guilt yeah it would kind of destroy you to think that you had ruined someone's life to yeah that. yeah somebody that you loved yeah let's see it will now be up to the head of the inquiry to refer the case to the court of criminal appeal to consider whether the convictions should be quashed this has not happened yet miss folby could then sue the state of new south wales for compensation or seek an ex gratia payment i hope that she does do you know what ex gratia means no it means the state can do it out of the kindness of their heart pretty much so it's like there's no legal requirement for them to but they can just decide to do it so that that like so if she doesn't take them to oh, court, oh, because it's like gracious. Yeah, it's gracious of them. It's gracious of them after Putting they fucked idea. up. <laughs> so Mark Speakman, the former Attorney General, was it the Attorney General? Yep. Uh, look, at, I, I, I sounded so proud of myself then, but I wrote this whole thing. And <laughs> yeah, like, I know. <laughs> he said, "quote There are no winners from this story. It's a terrible story of four lives lost, of a grieving father and a woman who's been incarcerated when she shouldn't have been for twenty years, and a grieving mother." <laughs> very angry i can tell <laughs> um but that is essentially the story of kathleen Folbig. well i'm as enraged as i thought it would be mm-hmm. um it's not it's not like okay so I, with kelly lane i remember saying to you she probably did it but she shouldn't be in prison yeah or I, well I, I said that was my stance i don't i don't no, she might have done it. Maybe mm. it's possible, but mm. regardless, she shouldn't be in prison. This one, I'm more like, I don't think she did do it. No, but even if she did, there's not evidence. Again, there's no, just, and, they don't have the evidence, and the evidence suggests the opposite. That you yeah, know, there's there's medical evidence that the kids died of natural natural causes. Yeah, exactly. Incredibly unfortunate that that would occur four times in a family, but mm-hmm. their their genes are not good for each other. It's my it's my um absolute joy to bum everyone out before we go away for two weeks <laughs> no it's a great one didn't olga suggest oh this yeah one? sorry yeah. olga olga suggested this one yeah um because she wanted to know about it well and it's also a topic du jour yeah at the moment yeah that is true that's true well look for your sake the next one that we record um is going to be a fun one but for everyone else everyone listening you won't hear that for a little while and it's going to be two weeks of Nothing. Not radio silence from us. Yeah. All right. Two weeks of, I guess, good podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy those two weeks, everyone, because uh, we'll, we'll be, be back, back. <laughs> with all shit after two weeks. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.